0: Thank you for tuning in to another episode of the Bakari Sellers podcast. Thank you so much for everyone who's tuned in to our live episodes. They have been amazing. Shout out to uh, my good friend, Andrew Gillum, with Real Talk with Andrew Gillum, found exclusively on Quake Media. Shout out to Angela Rye for On One with Angela Rye. And, you know, Ebony Williams, Charlemagne the God. We have a great thing going here at the Bakari Sellers podcast. And I just want to thank everyone for subscribing, downloading, sharing with your friends, talking to me, tweeting me, DMing me. Thank you so very much for everything. Today, we'll be interviewing my sister and friend Alicia Garza from the Black Futures Lab and the literal creator of the phrase Black Lives Matter and one of the movement for Black Lives leading thinkers. But before I get to Alicia, let's talk about the first 100 days of a Biden-Harris administration. You know, we've been Dealing with everything else, but let's talk substantively about the first 100 days. I know you shouldn't count your eggs before they hatch in politics, but I'm going to do that right now. We'll talk a lot on this show about Black America and what Black America should come to expect from a Biden Harris administration and how we can best go about shaping it in a way that reflects the moment that we're in and the vital role our votes played in delivering a Biden Harris White House in the first place. If we've learned anything from this episode with Ice Cube, it's that Black power can operate in isolation and hope to be effective. My hope would be that there is a unified effort across Black economic justice, social justice, criminal justice, and other interest groups to present a unified front on executive action, legislative ask, and personnel ask of a Biden-Harris administration. So what does that look like? A series of recommended executive actions ranging from action establishing the Commission to Study Reparations via executive order to vice president's recently announced commission to expand the federal courts, which should include identifying strategies for diversifying the federal judiciary and bringing into the fold more black judges with diverse experience, including experience as public defenders, criminal defense attorneys and criminal justice reform advocates coordinating with senior CBC leadership and key figures in a Biden-Harris administration in establishing ask for a COVID relief package that targets relief to Black communities and businesses ravaged by COVID that builds on the House passed Heroes Act, passage of the George Floyd and Policing Act, and securing hearings on the Breathe Act, as well as democracy reform packages that Include this Congress for the People's Act, the John Lewis Voting Rights Act, the Vote Safe Act, and legislation expanding our federal courts. Finally, personnel is policy. We need an executive branch that looks like us. That means having a black candidate being considered for every Senate-confirmed role and black organizations across the country identifying black talent that can serve this administration and thereby giving meaningful opportunities to serve this administration. If it sounds like a lot it is, even with black leadership at every level of a Biden-Harris administration, they can't do their jobs alone, and they'll need to be pushed the day after elections are certified for Joe Biden. I can't think of an election where black voters played a more pivotal role, and that should be reflected in every phase of this presidency, including the transition in the first 100 days. Now, today, we'll be interviewing Alicia Garza. Alicia is one of the early leaders of the movement for Black Lives and helped coin the phrase Black Lives Matter. Also, just as important, she leads Black Futures Lab and has the pulse of the emerging Black voices in this country leading on police reform, fighting to close the racial wealth gap and building a brighter, fairer future for Black America. We'll be looking to a host of new voices to lead us in a post-Trump America. And Alicia is one of them. And we're honored. I'm so
1: honored to have her on this show. This episode is brought to you by Jiffy Lube. Cars can be a big investment. So it's important to take care of them. I once got a car that I started out with $25,000 when to sell. So when the time is right, you can secure an instant offer from a local dealership or sell it yourself on cars.com. Start tracking your car's value with your garage on cars.com.
0: I am so excited today to have on the Bukari Sellers podcast, somebody who Puts me in the mind frame of Fannie Lou Hamer and Ella Baker. Her work in the movement is just second to none. Miss Alicia Garza, who has a new book out. Go cop it today. The purpose of power. What's going on, homie? How you
2: doing? Hi, thank you so much for having me on. I'm so excited to talk to you today.
0: No, it's, it's a pleasure for this show and my listeners to have you on. Uh, For those who don't know, Alicia is one of the founders or co-founders of this organization that Donald Trump can't keep out of his mouth called Black Lives Matter. For people who don't understand where Black Lives Matter originated, talk to us about that origin story. The movement itself is obviously driven and led by activists on the ground everywhere. But what's the origin story of the actual phrase Black Lives Matter?
2: Mm, Well, you know, Patrice and Opal and myself, I just want to say, are so humbled to be, like, the smallest piece of something so massive. And in 2013, George Zimmerman was acquitted in the murder of a 17-year-old teenager uh, whose name was Trayvon Martin. And, you know, unlike most of the cases that we hear about, George Zimmerman was, like, a wannabe neighborhood watch person. He was a vigilante. And, you know, the case really caught my eye because, It just seems so odd, right? I mean, Mm -hmm. I live in Oakland. You know, we're not strangers to police violence, but it's rare that we hear about vigilante murders. The night of the verdict, I actually thought alongside a whole ton of other people that George Zimmerman was gonna go to jail. I mean, it seemed like a no brainer to me. I was like, this ain't 1956. You don't just get to go kill little black children
0: (laughs) and get away
2: with it, but he did get away with it. And it impacted me severely. And that night I woke up in the middle of the night and I wrote a whole series of Facebook posts, one of which went viral. And it said, black people, I love you. I love us. Our lives matter. And my sister Patrice put a hashtag in front of it and said, black lives matter. And I didn't know what a hashtag was. Cause you know, I don't be on Twitter like that. I was like, <laughs> What you put in the pound sign for? I know
0: what's the yeah. pound sign. That's what my you said. That's what my mama talking about. Why they be putting the pound sign before <laughs> things in your in your sentences?
2: <laughs> exactly. <laughs> and uh, a little while later, Opal came on board and helped us build out the social media platforms to just help connect people online who were talking about what had happened, rageful in a bunch of ways, grieving, shocked, and we understand as organizers that social media is really a place for us to amplify and communicate information but it's not the best place to take action right yeah. so we really wanted to connect people online to do something about the things happening in our communities offline and that was seven years ago and now here we are and black lives matter is not just a hashtag it's not just a series of social media platforms it is effectively now a global movement. And as I understand it, it's the largest protest movement in history. Look
0: at that. You are a bad woman. What kind of work were you doing before uh, BLM? Tell people about the arc of who you are.
2: Oh, yeah. You know, people assume that Patrice and Opal and myself just kind of stumbled on each other one day in
0: 2013. (laughs) Yeah. Y'all just just saw each other at Starbucks and gave each other the Black Power Fist, (laughs) and it was on.
2: I wish that's how the story went, but it's not. I met Patrice uh, during an organizing exchange in Providence, Rhode Island, back in 2005, and we became... Close friends, like right from that minute, she and I were the last people left on the dance floor. So you can understand how we were. Uh, You can understand. I got Opal and I met at a black leaders retreat out in um, South Carolina at the Penn Center. And um, really connected, Opal had just uh, come on board in an organization called the Black Alliance for Just Immigration. At the time, I was leading a small grassroots organization in San Francisco called People Organized to Win Employment Rights, organizing against gentrification and displacement in one of the largest remaining Black communities left in San Francisco. Mm. And Patrice was organizing bus riders and organizing against prisons, in an organization called the Labor Community Strategy Center. And so uh, we've all known each other for quite a while. And, um, you know, the night that George Zimmerman was acquitted, one of the first people I called was Patrice. And at the time she was uh, down at Soledad prison visiting one of her mentees. Mm -hmm. And so, I mean, the, the relationships go deep. What I can say is that, you know, I've been organizing since I was 12 but inside of grassroots organizations, uh, at least since 2002. And, you know, the work that I've always done has been about making black communities powerful in every aspect of our lives. Uh, and in 2017, I left the day-to-day work of BLM, um, you know, left the behind the scenes work, no more staffing, no more raising money, no more, none of that stuff. <laughs> and a full, I started, that's a, that's
0: a, that's a full time job for four people. But yes.
2: Yeah. And it's also bananas because what I did was to go start another organization <laughs> called the Black Futures Lab. And we're
0: going to talk about that because y'all do dope work. You Thank guys, you. shout out to Patrice for securing the bag over at Warner Brothers hey. with her TV deal. Before true? we. Yeah, that's so dope. I, why don't call me. I you know, I look a little bit like I tell people I look a little bit like Michael B. Jordan. I've been working out. Call Let's me. Let me let me know what I need to do to get in one of these
2: you one of these be movies. First. I've been getting stitches for Patrice for the last week and a half. <laughs> Y'all know we're not the same person, right? And also, <laughs> she don't need your pitch. You know, <laughs> she got the bag. She got projects in the works. She so got projects in the works. To see what she do, and then see what you got. <laughs> but
0: talk to me about talk to me about your new project, the the purpose of power. What made you write this? Why now? And what's the what, what do you want people to get out of it?
2: Yeah. Well, I wrote this book while in the middle of a million projects which I wouldn't recommend to anybody. Book writing is really hard.
0: (laughs) It's it's a difficult, trust me, it's a difficult experience, yes.
2: It's emotionally hard. It's like spiritually hard. It's also physically difficult. Like It's hard work. And I thought it was important because I needed time to zoom out, to step back and to really reflect. I mean, at that point in time, we were about five years in To a complete whirlwind. And we had just finished the 2016 election cycle where we were building an organization while also trying to do work and also being used as a political football. And, you know, I know you remember, Bakari, that, you know, Black Lives Matter, I think, had swept the globe at that point, but we still couldn't really get people who were running for office to talk about Black Lives Matter. It was kind of considered political poison.
0: And now Um, Mitt Romney's saying it in the streets.
2: Listen, doing cartwheels while he's saying it too. I mean, it's a lot. It's a lot going on. But this book for me is an opportunity to share some of the things that I've learned, some of the things I'm unlearning, some of the things I'm still learning. And what I think is unique about it is that so many people have written about Black Lives Matter. Mm -hmm. but not the activists and organizers who are a part of it. There's very few firsthand accounts and reflections from those of us who are deep in it. And so it felt important to me to be able to tell a part of our story that I'm a part of. But I also know that BLM's story is still being written. So this is not a BLM book. It is a book about organizing and movement building and how we make change. And I place myself in the center of it because I want to show a different method of us placing ourselves in this current moment, better understanding how it is that we've been shaped by powerful movements that we may not be a part of, right? But they're shaping our lives and giving us some hope for the future and what we can create together.
0: That's dope. I was—I just had Abby Phillip on not long ago, and she's writing a book on Jesse Jackson.
2: She's and
0: I love her. And, uh, you know, we we kind of came to this agreement that many of the movements for our people, the yeah. stories aren't written by our people. And many of the leaders of our movements have stories that are not written by our people. And so I'm glad that you are sharing that story. I want to do like a, a, like a quick uh, rundown real quick for my listeners who may not be familiar with uh, BLM other than what they hear on a debate stage. So, I'm going to ask you a couple of quick questions. What's the difference between the movement for Black lives and the phrase Black Lives Matter?
2: Oh, I'm so glad you asked this. So, the movement for Black lives is a coalition of over 150 Black led grassroots organizations that have come together to achieve big things. And then there's the movement, right? Which is like everybody who believes that Black Lives Matter. They might be in an organization, they might be tied to it, they might have just put a flag up outside of their house. And then there is BLM. And BLM is itself an organization. It is a network of chapters that people have grown in different cities across the world. And Black Lives Matter Global Network is a part of the movement for black lives. <laughs> but the two things are not synonymous. I need,
0: I, I-, a, I need a diagram. I need to draw this out mm-hmm. on the board. You need
2: like the L word diagram, right? But- <laughs> yeah. Ultimately, what people should know is that these are formal entities and that they're not just random, you know, haphazardly put together. They have agendas, they have protocols, right? And so if you wanna know where are BLM chapters across the nation, you can go to our website. We've had it up since 2013. <laughs> it's blacklivesmatter.com. And you it's actually,
0: like, oh, y- y'all actually own that. Y'all got that early, huh?
2: Yeah. Yeah. Like we really, Opa, we Opa, Opa was
0: on. yeah, they were on it. Yeah. Cause that's, a. <laughs> yeah. you know, I know people trying to get that. What is, what is, how are local black lives matter chapters established?
2: Uh, they have to go through a process. So they have to go through, they have to first apply for membership and then they have to meet a certain set of criteria. And the process actually takes between three to six months. It's not immediate. You don't just get to say, I'm Black Lives Matter, such and such. People do do that, but they're not actually a part of the global network. Oh, I know
0: I know a bunch of them. that just running around yes. here talking about they they members. They ain't been members of nothing.
2: Well, can I say one thing though? Cause last night on the debate stage, the president started talking about Black Lives Matter. And I actually write about this in the book. This story that has been trafficked. I was going to, this starts, this
0: is a Fox News talking point. So I'm gonna sit back and let you go ahead and dissect this.
2: It's actually nonsense. And so this is not the first time this has happened. I wrote about this in the book. We actually did not know who those people were um, in St. Paul, Minnesota. The first time I ever even had contact with them was after this march happened. They really wanted to become a chapter and we said, ooh, I'm not sure that that's a good idea. And then we never heard from them again, right? So I just wanna say, this isn't the first time there was a, two officers who were ambushed in Brooklyn. People immediately started saying it was Black Lives Matter. But then you come to look at the social media of the shooter who was ultimately killed And he said, Black Lives Matter is too soft for me. He wasn't a part of Black Lives Matter. (laughs) They tried to do this in Baton Rouge and in Dallas as well, right? Oh, I
0: remember Dallas, yep.
2: These were former veterans, former uh, military officials who were Black um, and who created uh, and and conducted um, awful, awful acts. And immediately, this president tried to attach it to Black Lives Matter. Some of it has to do with the fact that I don't actually think he can tell Black people apart. But some of it is also strategic and it's to delegitimize, discredit and make people afraid of a movement that literally our goal is to make black lives matter.
0: Like the bare minimum.
2: It's not to take out white people. It's not to take out none of that. You can't talk
0: about Trump like that, man. Trump knows black lives matter and Tim Scott
2: about black people, except to try to put us in jail.
0: And Tim Scott, that's that's
2: that. And maybe Dan, but we'll leave that.
0: Oh, see, there you go. Is there like a national BLM headquarters? Who leads Black Lives Matter? Those are two questions people always ask me. I know the answers, but I'm just trying to go out and make sure we educate the listeners.
2: There's not a national Black Lives Matter headquarters. It is relatively decentralized, but it has organization And the leaders of Black Lives Matter include chapter leaders, right? Also, you can find those folks on our website and you can (laughs) contact them directly. Um, It's an actual organization, y'all. And I think what we're seeing here is there's been a shift. I mean, with social media, very few people actually have physical offices, right? Yeah, (laughs) exactly. Happens online. Look at what we're all doing. We're communicating through Zoom and on the internet. Well, some of us have been organizing that way for a while now.
0: 2020 has changed the world of sports. Some teams are adapting to the new times by making changes in their stadiums and arenas, while others are letting fans buy virtual seats in the stands. These changes have created demand for a wide range of unexpected roles from plexiglass screen installers to video platform support specialists. Whether you have hiring needs for new positions like these or positions you're already familiar with, there's only one place to go, that's ZipRecruiter. And right now, you can try it for free at ziprecruiter.com slash When you post a job on ZipRecruiter, it gets sent out to over 100 job sites. Then ZipRecruiter's matching technology finds the most qualified ones for your job and actively invites them to apply. It's no wonder four out of five employers who post on ZipRecruiter get a qualified candidate within the first day. That means the first 24 hours. For a variety of industries, ZipRecruiter can help you find the right people for your roles, even with these new roles. I had to pronounce them earlier, but let me go back through them. That's plexiglass, screen installer, and video platform specialist. ZipRecruiter is a hiring game changer. That's why you need to try it for free right now at ziprecruiter.com/bakari. That's ziprecruiter.com/bakari. Don't miss your chance. Go to ziprecruiter.com/bakari. ZipRecruiter, the smartest way to hire. So let's move forward. Let's talk about the work you're doing now because you're doing some really, really dope work. I'm so proud to know you and know the work that you're doing. What is the Black Futures Lab and describe the work y'all did with the Black Census Project?
2: Yeah, the Black Futures Lab works to make Black communities powerful in politics so that we can be powerful in the rest of our lives. And what we do at the lab is we experiment and we innovate with different ways of engaging our people in the political process. We see ourselves as a political home for Black folks who want to be involved in the decisions that are impacting our lives every day, but they may not ever show up at a protest, right? We're looking for people who are looking for a place where they can find up-to-date, accurate information about how the issues of our time impact our families, our communities, and ourselves. And we work with you to take action on the things that you care about. We started this project with a initiative called the Black Census Project. And Mm -hmm. it is to date the largest survey of black people in America in 155 years. What we learned was a ton about what it is that we deal with every day, but bigger than that, Bakari, we learned about what it is that we want for our futures. And even though our communities are not monoliths, we come from every different background and demographic, there are some things that connect us. And so that's where the Black Agenda 2020 comes from. And it is really a legislative roadmap for how we make Black Lives Matter from City Hall all the way up to Congress. Now this and the
0: agenda, this the agenda Ice Cube wrote for y'all, right?
2: No, no. Mm. <laughs> So our agenda, <laughs> <laughs> our agenda was released in February, and we've been organizing around it since then. More than 70,000 Black voters are using that agenda right now as we speak to make decisions up and down the ballot. And we've been using that agenda to advocate around COVID relief and recovery for Black America. Um, we have been doing this work in partnership with more than 14 black-led grassroots organizations in 11 states across this nation. And these are partnerships that we didn't just start yesterday. We've been in deep relationship for the last three years. And so Mm -hmm. a lot of what I think is important for folks to understand is that um, not all agendas are created equal. And one of the things that we're so proud of with ours is that it's not the activist agenda. It is the agenda that connects activists Conservatives, liberals, wealthy folks, poor folks, right? Queer folks, straight folks. We really did a lot of work to make sure that nobody in our community was left behind. And so you should check it out. It's at blacktothefuture.org. And we'd love for you to sign on and be a part of this movement.
0: I was going to ask, how could people support? But also, I just want your honest assessment as we're talking about this agenda how well do you think the Biden campaign's agenda aligns with the priorities identified in the black census project? That's my first question.
2: Mm -hmm. There's some alignment there. I mean, we should, we should um, claim the victories where we can get them. Right. (laughs) And there is some alignment there. I, I think, you know, we're, we're similarly on the same page in terms of economic advancement for black folks. We're on the same page in general around access to healthcare access to housing You know, I think for us, we think obviously we want to push farther. And the place where I think we have the most divergence is actually around criminal justice reform. Uh, You know, and there's still work to do here in terms of organizing a Biden administration um, to take seriously the issues surrounding criminal justice reform, which, quite frankly, also impact our economic stability and also impact the safety net issues that are facing our communities every day. I am proud to say that we have been working for almost a year now to get some of these points on the Black agenda into uh, the Biden uh, campaign vision and also into the vision of the DNC. And we were successful in some ways. We should claim those victories. And of course, we know we still have more work to do. Yes. I think there's a bigger question, Bakari, for us of why does it take this much work to do this? (laughs) (sighs) <sighs> black folks are the core constituency of the Democratic Party. So everybody should be climbing over themselves to address the concerns of Black communities. But that's why we organize. What's your if honest? Folks- what's your
0: honest assessment personally? Not from the census lab, not, but just from your your <laughs> political assessment of Biden's Lift Every Voice and Black Equity Plan. What's your personal assessment of that plan? You can grade it if you want to, or, or just just tell us how far we've come and, and kind of how far do we have to go?
2: I'm going to go ahead and give it a B minus C plus, and I'm going to tell you why.
0: Okay. <laughs> yeah, of course.
2: I think for a long time, political campaigns have targeted a certain demographic of Black voter. And I think the challenge with that is that it doesn't activate or motivate other demographics who are inconsistent or irregular Black voters to stay engaged and to get engaged. And that's ultimately what we want, right? We want more power in the hands of more people, and we want more people to participate more of the time. And so I think there's a way in which campaigns can underestimate the vibrancy and the power that Black communities can bring to them. But they also, I think, can recycle and rehash old strategies around more narrow perceptions of who black communities are. Let me give an example. In the last 20 years, the black immigrant population in this country has increased more than 15%. That's a big deal. That means that there are more people in our communities who have different experiences and different barriers and they are also black. And they need a president that speaks for them. They need a president who is representing them. You know, when we look across the nation, we see migration patterns are shifting, right? A lot more black folks are moving to the south and the southern areas of the country. Well, what does that mean? It means that black folks are moving to places where the minimum wage is much lower than in the rest of the country. Mm -hmm. Black folks are moving to places where Medicaid expansion is not happening because it's being blocked by uh, many Republican lawmakers. And that has deep impacts on our quality of life. So we need a president who can also follow the shifts in our community yes. and be advocating for our communities based on those shifts, not just based on who we were 30 years ago, 40 years ago, 50 years ago.
0: So look, that is a very well thought out and well-versed perspective coming from a history of being involved in the movement and the process. hmm Which brings me to my segue. I joked about it earlier. I wanted to talk about Ice Cube with you. I also want
2: to just offer here that Um, for me, you know, I've heard Van Jones and others say that people uh, need to go to the people in power. And I actually, you know, think I understand the premise behind that. But what it overshadows, in my mind, is it allows them to get off the hook for all of the other egregious things that they do to our communities. You know, I can't help but feel sick when I hear Donald Trump, you know, talking about the First Step Act, but then also telling the Proud Boys to stand back and stand by. And I don't get to actually look past that. That impacts my everyday life. I get death threats every single day from people who are listening to this president. And therefore, I don't have any confidence that even in the sense that he implements something like the First Step Act when it's convenient for him and talks mess about it when it's not. Uh, I don't have any confidence that that the amount of power has been built actually to get these things done. I don't fault you for trying to move an agenda, but I don't think we can take any shortcuts here and I certainly don't think we can jump the line. And you know, it would be one thing if people actually weren't working on this every day. Imagine what we could do together, Cube, if I had access to a platform like-
0: What was your initial response to Cube's contract with Black America? And I, my initial response, let me just tell you what mine was, was that it weirdly enough didn't include black women. How <laughs> it you write a,
1: <laughs>
0: how you write how you write 23 pages and don't nothing don't nothing have nothing to do with black women. My number one political issue is African-American female mortality because my wife nearly died in childbirth. But it's it's just it. it so that, that was just my initial thought. What was your initial response to his contract with black Americans?
2: Well, honestly, I I guess I just had a lot of questions. Number one was, why wouldn't you join what is already happening and try to help push it forward? I mean, there is a role for entertainers and celebrities in movements. We've had that uh, legacy for a long time. Look at Harry Belafonte. Look at Stevie Wonder, right? Look at all of these folks who amassed wealth and platform and used it to push forward Black folks. But they didn't just start their own thing. I mean, Harry Belafonte didn't all of a sudden be like, okay, well now I got some money, let me start my own civil rights movement. Harry Belafonte was like, let me help y'all, right? (laughs) Um, So I, I think the thing that I had questions about before the show was why wouldn't you reach out to the hundreds of black organizations that have been pushing forward an agenda for black lives for a long time now, a long time, and use your platform for that. But then I got the answers on the show. Yeah.
0: He didn't, he wasn't trying to, he wasn't trying to hear that. Um, you noted in the interview with cube that you and black futures lob would potentially work with him and the contract with black America. What does that kind of engagement sound like to you? Or were you just being politically correct on the show?
2: I mean, I'm, I'm willing to work with anybody who is doing work and <laughs> Even if we don't agree. That, that um, was
0: kind of, that was, we, Black women shave people with such ease and grace. <laughs> okay. I'm willing, to, <laughs> I'm willing to work with anybody who doing work. You. If,
2: if we don't agree on nine things and there's one thing that we can agree on, and I can be supportive of that in some way, I want to do that. Um, I will say that I didn't get a response. Of course not. And I do want to say that, um, you know, I, I think it felt like he was feeling ambushed, maybe. So I, I decided to give it a little bit of oxygen.
0: You know, I got a couple more political questions for you. And this one, I, as we were drafting up, uh, kind of scripting out our interview for you today, this was a question that that stuck out to me. We've seen Kanye, Q, Jason Whitlock, 50 Cent, all Black men publicly and actively engaging this White House. What we're not seeing, though, Is black women celebrities and influencers doing the same thing? If anything, we're just seeing the opposite from black women. The vast majority of black men will vote for Joe Biden, but about 14% of us voted for Trump in 2016. And some polling suggests upwards of 17% may support Trump this go-round. Where do you think the disconnect is in terms of how all black women are viewing this election, President Trump, versus how some, emphasis on some, because some brothers will scream at me for asking this question, but some black men are viewing the election in Trump. Where is that disconnect?
2: Well, I think the disconnect is really the fault of the political parties. And this is where I agree with Cube. This is where I agree with Kanye. I mean, at the end of the day, there's a gap here in terms of real substantive and sustained engagement. And so I say the parties did this to themselves and who's going to suffer from it is the Democrats. And what's happening here is that when people have been left out and left behind for so long, people can get desperate, right? And so this notion that I disagree with in a lot of ways that, you know, you have to engage both parties and all this stuff. I'm like, okay, if that's what you want to spend your time on, that's totally fine. I understand it. Um, But at the same time, I get the fact that where things stand, it's hard to tell sometimes who is actually for black folks. And that's the problem that we actually have to solve for. I don't think it gets solved for by a celebrity going to the White House and trying to speak for a bunch of people who frankly make 0.2% of the money that you make a year. And right? you haven't
0: and you haven't even dealt with them since your, your second album.
2: No, you know what I mean? So And I think we also have to be mindful, and this is what I would say to Kanye and Cube and and all these other folks, you know, presence, as my friend Rashad Robinson from Color of Change says, is not power. Just because you sit at the White House and meet with somebody don't mean it's going to get done. I mean, we had a whole group of preachers and such and such and so and so's meeting with Trump in his first term. Everybody wanted to go to the White House just to be at the White House. But in terms of substantive things that came out of those meetings, I'm still waiting for the list. I haven't seen it.
0: (laughs) Last question for you. Tell me this. If Kamala or Joe Biden called you and asked you for your advice on what an agenda for Black America should look like, executive action, legislation, appointments for the first 100 days, what would you tell them?
2: Mm. Well, I hope I get that call.
0: (laughs) Well, I know you... Kamala going to be sitting over there at the Naval Observatory calling all y'all like, I'm just chilling, drinking this red wine. Now, how are we going to fix this stuff? What, what you want me to do?
2: I hope I get that call, because frankly, um, I got 28 pages of ideas and I got some more also because when we endorsed Elizabeth Warren and we showed her our agenda, she sent us back 28 more pages of policy that she would do in addition to the things <laughs> that we wanted her to do. So I'm just saying. Um, first thing I would do is the first thing on the list from the census project, which is I would equalize and raise wages. One of the things I heard yesterday from, uh, the debates was, you know, president Trump used a very common conservative talking point, which is let states decide. But unfortunately the states where black folks are concentrated, the wages are the lowest. So we do actually need a raise in the federal minimum wage. And it's going to mean Huge things for folks in the South. Um, you know, the the wage in places like where I live, $15 an hour um, in certain cities, is too low for the cost of living here. But for folks in the South, $15 an hour would expand and increase not only the economy, but people's quality of life exponentially. And I'm supportive I mean, of uh, that.
0: We here in here in South Carolina, we just struggling to get by on what, $750?
2: You know what I'm saying? The other thing I would do in relationship to that is I would guarantee the right to collectively bargain. And so the attacks on unions, the attacks on the ability of workers to advocate for themselves is dangerous and detrimental to local economies. And so I would do that. Third thing I would do is I would make sure that we reform the drug laws to make sure that black folks get records expunged for marijuana convictions and also other non-lethal drugs as well. Third thing I would do here, Bakari, is I would end qualified immunity so that we can finally have accountability when police commit crimes in our communities. Police should not be above the law. Nobody else is.
0: You know, I would also, I'm gonna add this to it. I would call Justice Breyer and I said this on our live show, and tell Justice Breyer, thank you for your service. And we're gonna go ahead and get this black Supreme Court justice. Uh, yeah. on in here because, you know, I, I love I love Ruth Bader Ginsburg, but she should have resigned when Barack Obama was president of the United States.
2: Okay.
0: But Alicia, I just want to say thank you for coming on the show. I, I the the purpose of power we're going to be tonight. Where are we going to be tonight virtually?
2: Oh, at the California African-American Museum.
0: We're doing a book talk. I only do book talks with special people, you know, like T.D. Jake's. Pete Buttigieg, Alicia Garza, you know that's that's what we do. I know. I love you so much. I pray. I pray for your strength. I pray for your protection. Uh, I need you to come get these twins whenever you're free.
2: I'm trying to have my own, my G. After this election, it's time to. Small. Yeah, go ahead.
0: Yeah, we made our we made ours in a little lab. So they they come out. They, we, add, we added some handsome sauce. They like, how you want your kids to come out? We said gorgeous. That's what <laughs> me and my wife said. <laughs> I love you, sweetheart. Thank you so much. Have a good day now.
2: Thank you for having me, beloved.
0: All right, bye-bye. So we're adding a segment to the end of our show called One More Thing, where I'll leave you with some food for thought at the end of each episode. Today I wanted to talk about 50 Cent. <laughs> That makes me laugh just thinking about it, particularly his comments recently that he plans to support President Trump because of a graphic he came across combining state, local and federal income tax rates in California, New York State, New Jersey and New York City. So first, the combined 62 percent he is complaining about would only apply to people making more than four hundred thousand dollars a year. So that means 99 percent of Americans won't see their income taxes go up. There's also the concept of a marginal rate, the rate you pay on taxable income you have before adjustments are made, and what's called the effective rate, which is what you actually pay as a percentage of your taxable income after deductions, tax credits, and so forth. And that number is much lower for virtually everyone than that graphic suggests, which is only marginal rates. But this isn't really about taxes. It's about 50 cents. Who even after misunderstanding what the graphic actually means, he made his real point, which is that he doesn't give a fuck about how Trump impacts black people. He only cares about his money. The black people who bought his music, bought those ugly ass G Unit clothes, y'all had those white beaters, bought the vitamin water and watch power, have also lost loved ones to COVID, had their votes suppressed because the Trump DOJ doesn't care about voting rights and saw their jobs and businesses go because of Trump's incompetence. That doesn't matter to 50, though. Let's keep voting like our lives depend on it because it does. And let's make sure that the cultural influencers who we support also align with our values. You can't have my views, my clicks, or my money if you don't value my life. My hope is 50 either comes to a census or we do what we have to do because we have enough people who we have to remind every day that Black Lives Matter. Curtis Jackson shouldn't be one of them. Thank you again for tuning in to the Bakari Sellers Podcast.